All right. Again, we are in Romans 14. We've been there for a couple of weeks now. And today we're going to be focusing on verses 10 through 12. But before we get there, I want to go back and do a little bit of review and see where it is that we've been as we've been making our way through this chapter. So if you're not there already, turn to Romans 14. And we're going to go back and pick up in verse 1. And Paul here is transitioning somewhat, and he says, Now accept the one who is weak in the faith. Now, hopefully we'll remember that he's addressing a believer here, not an unbeliever. And uh, he's talking about a person who is weak in the faith in the sense that they don't uh, either understand or, or really choose to exercise the freedom that they have in Christ. They have freedom in Christ, absolutely, but they are opting not to exercise that freedom, and therefore they are called weak in the faith. And Paul here is addressing the opposite group, who would be the strong in the faith. Uh, those who do understand the freedom they have in Christ and they choose to exercise that freedom. And he's telling the strong to accept the person who is weak in faith. And he says, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So he's saying, don't just bring them in so that you can convert them to your own understanding of how how you think things ought to be, but really, truly accept them, embrace them for how they are, love them for how they are, without there being some kind of contingency that they have to adopt your your view, your opinion on uh, what we've established are secondary issues. He's not referring to primary doctrines, he's not referring to things that are definitional to Christianity, but uh, secondary questionable, doubtful things. Uh, that's what this word opinions means. Things that aren't necessarily settled, but they are uh, somewhat up for uh, debate. In verse 2, he says, one person has faith that he may eat all things. So he's here uh, using a, a specific example. So this uh, principle from verse 1 really kind of follows throughout the rest of the chapter that those who are strong in the faith ought to accept and embrace those who are weak in the faith, those who are bound by their conscience. Uh, and then he, in verse, verses 2 and 3, he illustrates this with this issue of uh, food. One person thinks that he's not allowed to eat whatever he wants. Um, the one person has faith that he may indeed eat all things. So that person, again, who thinks they can't eat all things, it would be the person who Paul would identify in 15.1 as the strong person, the one who realizes his freedom in Christ. But he who is weak eats vegetables only. He submits himself under these self-imposed regulations. <clears throat> Now, verses 3 and 4, they're going to uh, reflect and, and parallel today's passage quite a bit. So we'll look at those a little bit more in depth. But he says there that the one who eats, again, the strong, is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, and the Lord is able to make him stand. And so there in the last part of verse 4 we can see uh, Christ's lordship at work, that Christ is the one who causes somebody to stand. He is the one who enables and sanctifies each person to stand. Uh, we see uh, the doctrine of the, the perseverance of the saints, that God make somebody stand or fall. He causes them to continue in the faith. 
And then last week we looked at uh, verses 5 through 9. And we see in verses 5 and 6 a second illustration, a second example. So first he uses an illustration of the person who thinks that he can eat whatever he wants. And here he uses an illustration of uh, certain days, putting one day above another, special days. He says in verse 5, one person regards one day above another. Another regards every day alike. Now, here's a, a key phrase that we need to really hold on to, that each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. That's key to the whole passage or whole understanding of this chapter, that whatever we do, whether we are going to eat, whether we're not going to eat, uh, again, those are just illustrations, but uh, the things that we choose to do and choose not to do, we must be fully convinced in our own mind. And he draws it out in verse 6, that he who observes the day, uh, he would be the, the weak one again, right? Absorbs it, observes it for the Lord. And he who eats does so for the Lord. So even the things that we do that are exercising our freedom, the liberty that we have in Christ, those things must also be done uh, by being convinced in your own mind, doing it for the Lord, that he says, for they give thanks to God. He who does not eat the Lord, for the Lord, he does not eat. He does it for the Lord and gives thanks to God. So if you are going to uh, restrain freedom that you have in Christ, it needs to be done for the Lord, not begrudgingly, not something that uh, is a, a chore or is burdensome to you. Uh, verses 7 through 9 uh, we see again that we are the Lord. This again speaks to the the lordship aspect that uh, verse 9 kind of sums it up. That for to this end Christ died and lived again that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. God is Lord over all and we have to submit to him as such whether uh, we're in one group, one category or the other. Now, as we get to our passage today, verses 10 through 12, we have to realize that Paul is still talking to these two different groups, to the weak and to the strong. And here he kind of steps it up a little bit. He's been writing in somewhat of a, a general form, general terms up until this point. And now he's going to get a little bit more specific. Um, and he's going to hit them with two straight questions. He's going to say, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, you, why do you regard your brother with contempt? And hopefully we can see that, that transition. If you just look up a little bit, he's like in these previous verses, he says one person has faith. Again, like a, a generic, somebody has faith. Somebody says that they're able to eat. One person does this. One person does that. Even in verse 4, where he does address them, he says, who are you to judge the servant of another? It doesn't seem as, as sharp as down here. Uh, it's more of a speaking to a plurality. But then we get down to verse 10. He kind of hones in on who he's talking to a little bit. He gets a little bit more direct, less of a, a shotgun approach, more of a um, put the gun to your forehead, right? You need to listen up now. But you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, you, why do you regard your brother with contempt? And so as he's addressing these people here, these two different groups, uh, who is he identifying in this verse as a person who is more likely to pass judgment on their brother? But you, why do you judge your brother? Who is he talking to there? 
uh, the strong brother or the weak brother? The strong brother. All right. And how do we know that? Experience. <laughs> All right. Let's go back up to uh, verse 3, right? He says, but the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. So the one who eats, uh, he has that, that freedom in the Lord. He recognizes that freedom in the Lord. So he would be the strong one, right? He says, um, the one who does not eat is not the one. Let me see. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. So again, going back down and tying that verse in with verse 10. Who is the one who is more likely to judge rather than hold the person in contempt? <laughs> All right. So yeah, the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. So the one who doesn't eat, he's saying, I have to abide by these extra commands by these extra laws, right? Uh, again, tying that in with verse two, the one who has, the person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So it's a weak person who says, I'm going to abstain. I'm not going to eat. Um, and we see down here in verse three, that that person who does not eat uh, has uh, a propensity to judge. Why are, why are they eating those things that they ought not to eat, right? Why are they participating in those things that I am convinced I should not participate in, that I need to abstain from? Um, that's the person who is more likely to judge. I think we can tie that in down here with verse 10, that it's the weak person who abstains. But why do you judge your brother, speaking to the weak? Or again, now he's shifting his focus to the other group. Why do you regard your brother with contempt? And again, we can tie that in with verse 3, that the one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. So the one who realizes that freedom, that liberty that he has in Christ, he's saying, oh, I'm going to eat all the, the pork, all the meat, anything that I want. I'm going to practice my, my freedom, this liberty that I have in Christ. And he has a propensity, again, to regard with contempt the one who does not eat to belittle him, to uh, disregard him, to look at him in different eye, with different eyes, saying that um, this person, they're subjecting themselves under laws that they ought not to, um, to look down upon somebody else. So that would be the, the strong person in the second part of verse 10, who has a propensity to regard another with contempt. Now he says, for you again, why do you regard your what, your, your friend or your neighbor, brother. your interlocutor? No, your, your brother, right? So he's pointing out the fact that this is your brother, somebody who uh, is in the, the household of Christ. They are bought with the blood of Christ. Realizing this uh, familial relationship should really cause somebody to be less critical, to be more gracious, more patient, realizing that this is your brother. Um, so Kayla, I was going to give you a verse earlier and I got busy doing something else. Will you look up first Corinthians eight eleven for us, please? And I think this verse in first Corinthians eight, it's kind of been 
just marinating in, in my mind this week, last few weeks actually, as we've been studying this and considering how we ought to consider our brother, whether they are weak or strong, this brother who has different understanding of secondary and tertiary things than what we do ourselves. So 1 Corinthians 8.11, what does that say, Kayla? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother from whom Christ died. All right. So if we don't treat our brother with the, the proper mentality, with the proper uh, actions as well, this brother for whom Christ died is uh, destroyed. Or again, we just look down to verse 15. We'll cover this next week. Uh, Paul says here, do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Let's not glance over that too quickly, but to realize that our brothers who are of the faith, who see things slightly differently than we do in non-primary issues, they are somebody for whom Christ has died. That that lands with me. Hopefully it lands with you to realize um, the, the weightiness of that, that they are indeed in Christ. They are brothers. Yes? The next verse in 1 Corinthians 8, verse 12 says, By sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So Ouch. Clearly it's a sin against the person and it's a sin against Christ. Yeah. Your charge. Yeah, that should definitely give us pause. And uh, again, back in 1 Corinthians 8, Paul said, uh, if eating meat is going to cause my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again. And I think that's the right attitude that we ought to have, that even this secondary issue that we think uh, isn't uh, a problem for us, if it's a problem for our brother or sister in Christ, then we should prioritize that and say, I'm willing to... Uh, hold off on that privilege, that freedom, that liberty that I have in Christ for the sake of my brother, even though it doesn't have any bearing on my spirituality uh, directly, indirectly, I think it does. Because when one part of the body hurts, we are all hurting together. When one part of the body suffers, we all suffer together. Looking down at uh, 15, I mean, the wrong chapter, at 15a, um, he says, for if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. So that ought to be the, the standard that we use throughout this whole process of trying to figure out, is, is this something that I am allowed to do? Is this something that I should be doing? Uh, Paul says, all things are lawful for me. That doesn't mean all things are profitable for me. And not only for him, but for those around him, for the brothers and sisters that uh, he walks hand in hand with. Uh, the standard ought to be established as love, is what we're doing, loving towards our brother, who was bought by another. Um, so not only should this affect our, our attitude and our approach, but we need to realize that they are not under our care, right? We are not the, the Lord of our brothers. The Lord is the Lord of our brothers. Uh, we can again see that going back up to verse 4, that who... Paul says, who are you to judge the servant of another? That's, that's not our place, right? We need to realize that and properly place ourselves, uh, not over our brother, but uh, allow them to uh, change the, the trajectory of our, our thought processes and our actions and attitudes towards them. 
Um, and again, in verse 10, he's talking to both of them here. So he starts off by uh, talking to the weak. Don't judge your brother, you who are weak. Or again, you who are strong, don't look down on your brother with contempt. He's addressing both of them. And I kind of get in my mind a, a picture of two kids fighting, right? Whether that's my kids or me and my brother when we were growing up. Um, and Bob kind of coming in and saying, no, that's not okay. You were antagonizing your brother. You were provoking him and egging him on. And then, yes, he responded in a sinful way. And that wasn't okay. And then you came and you're snitching on your brother and ratting him out. And that's not okay. There's, both of you guys are at fault, right? And that's not okay. You guys just wait until dad gets home and dad's going to come home and he's going to straighten everything out, right? Uh, so that's kind of the, the tone that I'm picking up here from, from Paul. He says, but you, you're... Why do you judge your brother? You shouldn't be judging your brother. And, and you, over on the other side, uh, again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? And then he says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, right? Daddy's coming home. You guys are both in trouble. Nobody's in the right. Uh, so knock it off, right? Stop doing what you're doing. Um, are you guys familiar with the, the saying that the ground is level at the foot of the cross? You guys heard that before? seeing some no shakes. So that's a good saying. That's a good phrase. So the ground is level at the foot of the cross. So you get a, a wicked, evil Adolf Hitler's classic example, right? And Christ's blood is just as able to atone for his uh, massive amounts of sin as it is for uh, Mother Teresa. Everybody comes to the foot of the cross and nobody is above another, right? We're all sinful. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Well, here we're talking about the judgment seat of God. Is the ground level at the judgment seat of God? Any thoughts initially? No, no judgment if, if not. All right. I'm seeing a few eyes, like maybe you well, want to. Depends on what you're asking. Are we all going to be? Are all Christians going to be judged at the same throne? Yes. Are we all going to be judged equally, like we are equal before the foot of the cross? No. Teachers will endure stricter judgment than there are other things that go into that. Yes. That's not a good one, but <laughs> I mean, that is a true, true verse, but uh, yes, I'm not, not super excited about that one for sure. Uh, we will all stand before Christ, right? It says that even in this verse that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, but not on level ground. There are uh, varying judgments for varying people, and there are even various judgments for various types of people. So uh, I want to start off by looking not at the judgment that we're talking about here. We're going to take a, a little detour for a minute, uh, an excursion, and we're going to talk about judgments for a good chunk of our class. So turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. We'll check that out. Revelation 20. And... Let's see. I want somebody to read for us verses 7 through, we'll just go 7 through 10 for now. And as we're looking through this, um, I want us to ask, what do we learn here about this particular judgment? So can I get somebody to read 7 through 10, then after that, um, somebody else to read 11 through 15. Who's got 7 through 10? Jim and 11 through 15. Jerry? 
All right, go ahead, Jim. Seven through ten. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from the prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth. Gog and Magog together them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right. So, uh, in that last verse, we see that Satan is cast, right, into the lake of fire. Who cast him there? God, right? The one with all power and all authority. And how long is he cast there for? Yeah, the, the torment will, uh, the torment of his flames, I think that's back in 14, will go up forever and ever, right? Um, yeah, here's just another passage from 14, 10, and 11. I'll do 9 through 11. It says, Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will drink the wine of the wrath again of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. They have no rest day or night. Those who worship the beast and his image, whoever receives the mark of his name. So again, we see there that concept of being tormented with fire and brimstone under the wrath and the anger of God. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever without rest. So the main reason I wanted to read that point, that passage was just to point out the eternality of this punishment. But now let's look at uh, this judgment. This is called the, the Great White Throne Judgment. So you have that there on your page, Great White Throne Judgment. You go, can go ahead and jot down that passage next to it, uh, Revelation 20, 11 through 15. And let's go ahead and look at that. And again, let's try to pick out what we learned from this passage. So will you go ahead and read that for us, Jerry? Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne. And books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. They were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Death and Hades were blown, thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And everyone's name was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into So, in that last passage, we saw that um, God is the one who judges, right? That judgment is eternal. What else do we see here in 11 through 15? What do we learn about this great white throne judgment?
all people stand before it. Yep. Great and small, right? What does it say before great and small there in verse 12? Those who were dead. Yeah, he said he saw the dead, great and small, right? Does that mean the the tall people, the Shaquille O'Neal's and the little midgets? That's that's derogatory, right? Not allowed to say that. Small people. Um, Tom Cruises, yes. <laughs> uh, everybody, regardless of their, their status or position, right? They're going to stand before this judgment seat of God, this great white throne judgment. Good. What else do we see? What are they judged upon? Yeah, they're judged by their deeds, right? I think it says that uh, two times in there. That they're judged by their deeds. Um, the end of 12 and the end of 13? Yep. 12 and 13, both times. According to their deeds, they will be judged. What does that mean? That they will be judged according to their deeds? Is there, it means that their deeds will be evaluated as to whether they were holy. Yep. Contrast to book and books. These are in the books, but names are in the book. Yes. So, three, three types of books. Three books or three types of books. There's three, three different things. One book is the Lamb's Book of Life. Names in there, then you're good. Yeah, that's what it all comes down to. Is your name in the, the Lamb's Book of Life, or, or is it not? And Jerry, as you mentioned, this judgment is going to be a, a strict judgment because God is a holy God. We see throughout uh, Matthew 5, Jesus says, Well, you've heard it said this, right? But I tell you, look at a woman with lust, or if you have anger within your heart, he's uh, really evaluating the, the heart level of the, the sin that people are going to be judged for these evil deeds that are uh, going to be laid bare at this great white throne judgment. Uh, now let's turn back to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11 and I'm just oh, going to add uh, one other thing to note from that great white throne <laughs> judgment is that heaven or hell is on the line in that judgment. Yes. That's the, that's the result. It's not it's not anything else but just determining if, where you're spending eternity. Yep, absolutely. So, yeah, if your name's in the book of life, you will be uh, with God for eternity. If not, you will be judged for eternity under this torment, uh, eternal fire that goes up forever and ever. Now, again, in reference to uh, whether or not the, the ground is level at this judgment where people are going to be judged based upon their deeds. Their deeds are going to be laid bare. Uh, let's look back at Matthew 11. And can somebody read for us verses 20 through 24? Matthew 11, 20? Yep, through 24. Okay. Then you begin to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Look to you, tourism, 
Woe to you, Bethsaida, for in the mighty works done in you, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, you would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than, than for you. All right. Um, so there we can see that there's a, a difference in how they're going to be judged, right? That there are degrees. It's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for these other cities who had more exposure to the light of Christ. They were actually there. They witnessed firsthand the miracles that Christ did, and they still denounced Christ. Uh, they were putting their faith in themselves rather than in this God who was right there showing them. Uh, oftentimes people will be so foolish as to say, well, if God would just, you know, write it in the stars, then, then I would believe. He came to this world. He raised people from the dead. They didn't believe, right? Um, and because of that, they're going to be judged more harshly because of the exposure that they had to light. So uh, there I think we see a, a good example that the ground is not always level. It isn't level at uh, the judgment seats of, of God. Again, this is a, a separate judgment than what we're looking at in, in Romans 14. We'll get back there in a moment. But uh, before that, let's look at a, another judgment uh, in Matthew 25. Matthew 25. We'll start in 31. Now this judgment again is going to be different from the, the great white throne judgment that we saw in Revelation 20 um, and different from the one that we're going to look at in Romans 14. But we will we'll parse this out in just a moment. But for now let's look at Matthew 25 verses 31 through 34. And it says there, But when the Son of Man comes in His glory... And all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. So when is this taking place? Second coming. The second coming, when Christ comes in his glory, as he sits on his glorious throne, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another. As a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Then jumping down to uh, verse 41, he goes and he talks about why they would be uh, inheriting that kingdom. 41, he says to the other group, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire. Again, it's eternal which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Then he goes and expounds why they are uh, being cast into this eternal fire. And he says, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So, again, how long is this punishment going to take place? Just for a time, just for a season? No, it's eternal, right? An eternal punishment. And once again, when does this take place? When is this 
at the second coming. So when Jesus comes again, he's going to set up and establish his, his kingdom, right? This thousand year reign of Christ. And this uh, judgment, this uh, sheep and goats judgment that we see in Matthew 25, it's going to be before the second coming. It's going to take place here as uh, Christ is coming back. The last judgment that we looked at in uh, Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment, it's going to take place after the thousand year reign. Uh, That's when all accounts are going to be settled before going into uh, the eternal state, before going into the, the new heavens and new earth. So these are two different judgments that we see uh, that are taking place. And this judgment that we are concerned with in uh, back in Romans, this is a, a separate judgment from either one of these judgments. So these judgments are on the basis of sin, um, the, the preparation for Christ's kingdom here on earth, and then the, the settling of all things, making all things right before entering into the new heavens and new earth. So with that uh, established, these are different kingdoms, or different judgments rather. Uh, let's go back to Romans 14 and let's look at this other judgment seat that we have here in Romans 14, 10. So Romans 14, 10 again says, but you, why do you judge your brother? Or again, you, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Now this is a reference to a completely different judgment because who is in view here? Who is Paul talking to? He's talking to believers, right? Uh, whether it's the weak believer or the strong believer, everybody here in view is a believer. And uh, this is a completely different judgment. This is called the, the Bema Seat Judgment. That's the uh, Greek word that we see here uh, for judgment seat. And this will take place after the rapture. So it will be, the church will be raptured up. And then this is when this judgment seat that is in reference to believers, not on the basis of sin, is going to take place. This is the only judgment that isn't on the basis of sin, uh, except for perhaps the sin of omission, not doing certain things that we ought to have done. Um, this, the, the word beam seat actually refers to an elevated platform that's mounted up on, on steps. So kind of like a, a throne is the image that we get. We see it several times throughout the, the New Testament. We got this quote here from uh, J-Mac. He says, in Greek culture, Bema referred to the elevated platform on which victorious athletes received their crowns, much like the medal stand in the modern Olympic Games. 
in the New Testament, it was used of the judgment seat of Pilate in Matthew 27 and John 19 of Herod in Acts 12, of Festus in Acts 25, the seats that they sat upon as they were ruling and judging. A person was brought before a bima to have his or her deeds examined in a judicial sense for indictment or exoneration or for the purpose of recognizing and rewarding some different achievements. So um, I know we're bouncing around a little bit today, but let's take another look at where this word judgment seat is used, bima seat, in 2 Corinthians 5. Like Corinthians 5. Will somebody grab verses 9 and 10 for us? Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. All right. So, verse 9 says that we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to Him, be pleasing to God. So, who is this talking about? Who has that as their ambition? Believers, right? Unbelievers don't have that as their ambition. This is, and even before that, it's very clear this is all talking about believers. Um, it's not in reference to. Uh, criminals or rebels, but to slaves of Christ, those who have submitted to Christ. And what is the, the purpose of this judgment in verse 10? Yeah, that we might be recompensed or, or paid back for your deeds in the body, right? what we have done in the body according to uh, everything we've done, whether good or bad. Now, this word for bad, it's uh, a different word than the two words that are typically used for bad that have reference to our morality, something that is morally good or morally bad. Uh, but instead, this word is speaking of something that is use useless or worthless, something that doesn't hold or, or maintain its value. Um, like watching TV, it could be morally good or bad, right? But most of the time it's just kind of neutral. It doesn't really have any um, sinful aspect to it or uh, doing yard work or uh, doing the dishes. It's not something that is uh, morally good or bad. It's just kind of neutral. Uh, but at the end, it's going to be worthless, right? It's not really going to account for anything. It's kind of neutral. And we can get a, a glimpse of when this is going to take place if we reference uh, Revelation 22.12. And I think uh, you've got that for us, don't you? Behold, I'm coming quickly, and my reward is, is with me to render every man according to what he has done. All right. So, again... Uh, before the, the seven-year tribulation, Christ is coming for his church. He's coming quickly, and he's coming with his reward. He has his reward with him. Um, the idea of uh, this judgment, this Bema seat, uh, really has this idea of, of prominence and dignity and honor, uh, not just strict judgment. So again, when 
we saw that if it's talking about somebody elevating up to a kind of throne, a, a place of position, a place of authority and providence. It's even used of people receiving honors and, and crowns for their achievements and athletic abilities. Uh, it has this idea of providence and uh, honor more so than just a strict judgment like these other two, the Great White Throne Judgment or the Sheep and Goats Judgment. Uh, we see rewards that are tied in with this uh, usage of the, the Bema Seat Judgment. Uh, let's turn back now, more bouncing around, back to 1 Corinthians 3, where I think this same judgment is also in view. 1 Corinthians 3, will somebody grab verses 10 through 15? Who's got 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 15? According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master build on the foundation of someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care of how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than what other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. <clears throat> if anyone builds on the foundation of gold and silver precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that one has, anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss through. So he himself will be saved, but not only, but only as the all right, so in those first couple of verses, uh, we see that we need to be careful how we build on this foundation, right? This foundation has been laid. This foundation is Christ. Um, this is, again, speaking to primary issues that we don't have the, the freedom to go against. We can't just change a foundation. We need to be careful how we build. Uh, then he goes on, he talks about how what we do build on the foundation is going to be judged, whether it's gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, and stubble or straw. It's going to be tested as through fire uh, to test the, not the, the quantity of the work, but the, the quality of the work. How it, what we've done in the body for Christ measures up in the end, whether it's good or uh, bad, worthless, useless, uh, something that's inconsequential. And uh, remember, this was written before two by fours were $10 a piece. So even though you might look at that wood and think, oh, that's, that's pretty good. Remember, it's being tested by fire, right? So it's going to be burnt up. All that stuff that uh, doesn't really amount to anything is going to be laid bare. And only... Uh, says verse 14, if any man's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. That reward only comes if that work remains after being tested by fire. This is again uh, in line with the kind of judgment seat that we see back in Romans 14. So before we go back to Romans 14 and jump to verse 11, any thoughts or questions on those different judgments and how uh, we're affected by them. 
All right, remember this one is for believers, and it is for rewards. Uh, these two uh, are on the basis of sin and uh, affect eternal standing. Yes? Um, what's the difference between a believer and a goat? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, we call that, but like, yeah. I just don't understand how if we've already gone, are we... Yeah, so this is, I just thought it was funny that you said believer and goat, not sheep and goat, or believer and unbeliever. But this is like, obviously there's this redemption right there, uh-huh. and then... And then through the, the seven-year tribulation, there's still going to be people that come to Christ, right? There are going to be believers there. They're going to be judged here whether or not they're uh, in Christ or not. Jesus is going to separate the sheep and the goats, uh, put them to the right, put them to the left, so that going into the thousand-year kingdom, uh, he can uh, purge out the, the sin and uh, that those going in will be his. And then, of course, there are going to be other people born throughout the thousand-year kingdom that are going to rebel against him. And uh, you will again have uh, a great mix of believers and unbelievers, and they'll be the judged is, here. The sheep and the goats, that's like between... Like what's happening? That's like what's happening in the seven-year tribulation, right? Like afterwards, the seven-year tribulation. Yes. Yes. Yeah. This is after the the seven-year tribulation. And there is no time gap between. Yeah. My my arrow. I didn't write that right. So just this is here somewhere, right? I put it more to the right. Well, there shouldn't be a. a There's no time gap between the seven-year tribulation and the thousand-year kingdom. The seven-year tribulation ends with the thousand-year kingdom. There might be a small time gap, but, but not like that. Not like that. <laughs> yeah, I did that to put it. That's where the, the sheep and goats judgment takes place. Yes, my drawing is deceptive. Yes. So in the a thousand year kingdom, Jesus will be present, right? Yes. If Jesus is God, then why is there sinners among, you know, uh-huh. the kingdom? That's a great question. Remember that Jesus was present before, and Judas still rebelled against him, didn't he? Uh, even though he walked with Jesus for three years, uh, and you would think, dude, how can you be so dense as to turn your back on the Messiah, who is clearly the Messiah, doing all these things? And yet, he did, because salvation isn't dependent upon what we can see and observe with our eyes, but it's dependent upon our hearts and what uh, God does in our hearts. And then we see, um, let me see. All right, uh, at the end of Matthew 28, it says, But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, and only eleven because uh, Judas was already gone, to the mountain which Jesus had, de- had designated. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Again, this is after uh, Christ's death and <laughs> resurrection. And some were still doubting. So uh, I think we can, it, it's hard for us to imagine, but it happens. And it's going to happen at that point where people are going to reject Christ, even though he's living and reigning. Yes? Well, and a, a big part of that thousand year reign is demonstrating his utter authority on the earth. And you don't really get the sense of his authority if everyone is perfectly obedient, right? It says he's going to rule the nation with the rod of iron. And so. Uh, those who, those kings or those leaders who reject Christ, are, they're going to be brought into conformity with Christ through His authority that will be demonstrated uh, as the ultimate King, whose kingdom is from sea to sea. So that, that demonstration of authority will be explicit. Yep. 
we're going to get there in our, our text too and see the authority of Christ. Um, and again, even in regards to salvation, that he is sovereign over all. We can't just will ourselves into the kingdom. Even if we're sitting there looking at something, if our eyes are opened by, by God himself, then we're going to remain blind and in darkness. So back in Romans uh, 14, picking up in verse 11, after Paul says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God, um, remember, just keep yourselves in check because we're all going to be there together before the judgment seat of God. He's saying, for it is written... As I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me and every tongue shall give praise to God. Uh, he's there quoting from Isaiah 45, 23. And I want to read to you guys the verses before and after that from where Isaiah is quoting because it does highlight the, the sovereignty of God, how he is sovereign in all things. He says, Isaiah 45, 22 through 24, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is no other. He alone is God. I have sworn by myself, just like he says in Hebrews 6, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say to me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. So everybody uh, should recognize that God's jurisdiction is universal in scope, that he has jurisdiction over everybody, over everything, that he is sovereign over absolutely all things, and we are going to have to give an account to him. That's Paul's point to these strong and these weak Christians, that we're all going to be standing before the judgment seat of God. Even the Christians, we're going to stand before the, the Bema seat of Christ, this uh, judgment that isn't necessarily a basis of sin that has in view the rewards, but we're all going to stand there together giving an account to the one who is sovereign over all things. We cannot uh, usurp his authority. We cannot usurp his, his lordship and again act in judgment or um, look at our brother with contempt acting as if we are the Lord ourselves. We're not the Lord. We need to submit ourselves to his lordship, not self-righteously judge our brothers. That's what he gets to in verse 12. He says, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. We're not called to give an account for our brother and how he lives and how he uh, understands and views these other issues that aren't primary, but we are to give an account for ourselves only. And then he wraps it up with, uh, the first part of 13, therefore, let us not judge one another anymore. That's his, his big point. We are not to stand in judgment over one another. Uh, Jesus is the one who has been given all authority. In John 5, uh, 25 through 29, we see Jesus has been given all authority by the Father. He is the one who is to exercise all judgment. Uh, one last passage I want us to turn to and consider together in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And this is often referenced uh, when speaking about money, being a, a good steward of money, but the context here isn't talking about money, it's talking about uh, loving the church and caring for the church, not being divisive within the church. And Paul says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Be, be gracious with us, right? 
In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. But to me, it is a very small thing that I may be examined by you, or by any human court, in fact. I do not even examine myself. Paul doesn't care what other people say about him. He doesn't even examine himself. He says in verse 4, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted. But the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of men's hearts, and that each man's praise will come to him from God. And that's a, a pretty scary verse, that last one, because we see there that uh, our motives are going to be taken into account when God judges us at this Bema seat. He's going to consider our motives, whether we did these things with a, a good, pure heart or whether we just did them outwardly. Uh, like Jesus talked about in Matthew 6, when he says um, that the, the poor go out and or that somebody goes out and they give to the poor and they sound a, a trumpet to let everybody know, look what I'm doing, I'm giving to the poor. Or when somebody goes out and they pray in the street so everybody can see them, well, they've received their reward in full. Or if they uh, fast with a, a gloomy look on their face so everybody knows they're, they're fasting, Jesus says their reward has been received in full. Um, because God takes our motives into account, what it is that we are doing and why it is that we are doing it. And so, uh, kind of landed the plane here, looking at Romans 14 and uh, Paul's point here up to this point in Romans 14. Uh, John Stott points out four different reasons why we should welcome the weak into the church and uh, embrace those who, again, have a different view of their freedom in Christ. So, four different reasons. Uh, he says, one, that God accepts them. We saw that in verse 3. God himself accepts the weak. Uh, secondly, Christ died and he rose to be the Lord, both theirs and ours. We see that in verse 9. Jesus died for them and for us. Uh, third reason we should accept the weak is that they are our sisters and our brothers, so that we are members of the same family. We saw that at the beginning of verse 10. And then fourthly, that all of us together are going to stand before God's judgment seat. Uh, so we ought to embrace and accept, truly accept the weak uh, in the church without passing judgment, um, realizing that it's not, uh, we are not to focus or nitpick our, our brother's sins, but rather we are to uh, fix our eyes on our own future judgment, to build up our treasures on earth now, um, realizing that uh, we're not promised tomorrow, that we're here today and tomorrow we're gone. Life is just a, a vapor and a mist, so we should not be focused on judging others, but we should focus rather on our own selves. Jeremy, and then we'll close. Can you explain if, for that being the seed judgment for Christians, if heaven and hell is not on the line, what is on the line? Uh, it's all in, in reference to our rewards and uh, what it is we're going to what is receive. Isn't heaven itself the reward? Yeah, but again, the, the ground is not level at the judgment seat, at any of these judgments. Uh, we'll be given different rewards, different crowns, uh, which we didn't get into. We won't have time to get into, but um, we have different 
uh, rewards in heaven. So yes, everybody there is going to be a winner. Everybody at the BBC is already in Christ. But uh, but for some, they'll have like a celestial experience, and others will have a terrestrial experience, and a celestial experience. Is that right? No, I, I don't know. That's hard to answer. Uh, it's going to be heaven for everybody, but some will suffer loss. Um, we see that in First Corinthians 3. So it's, I don't really know what that means to suffer loss, but they will still be with Christ in heaven forever. Um, they just will have fewer crowns to cast before him at his feet is my assumption. I don't think we can know for sure. But do you have anything you want to add? Yes. I mean, we have to... It's a huge chasm between here and heaven, but we have to understand what God originally designed and built, and I think from perspective of some sort, dark as it is, but it won't be a static situation in eternity. There will be more activity, creativity than we can imagine now. Yeah, there's ruling and kings. There will still be nations, and there will be leaders of those nations. Yes. Yeah. No one ever wants to downplay the significance of those rewards. Bearing on each one of us. Yep. But not in a sense that we're going to end up in different kingdoms. So that's good. There is one heaven. We will all be there, but our rewards will vary. Yeah. Despite the fact that some people are ruling over others. Uh, no arrogance, no contempt. Yeah. We'll have to wait and see to fully experience what, what that looks like and how it works. Uh, real quick, just. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> All right, let's pray. Uh, God, we do thank you for uh, the, the mysteries that you lay before us. We thank you for the mysteries that you revealed in Scripture. Thank you for uh, the, the secret things that belong to you alone. And we look with, with hope and anticipation for your coming, uh, for the fact that uh, sin will be utterly dealt with and the, the presence of sin will be no more. We pray that until then you will help us to overcome the, the power of sin by your Holy Spirit, that we will walk with you, uh, walk in the light, and uh, that we will shine like stars in this crooked and depraved universe. God, we love you and praise you. Amen.